This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The first interview you're about to hear is with Nick McClellan. Nick is a Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story, and he joined me to discuss all things Pacific politics. We discuss French President Emmanuel Macron's recent visit to French Polynesia, as well as the ongoing politics and legacy of France's historic nuclear testing in the Pacific. We also discuss what occurred at the last Pacific Islands Forum meeting, as well as the COVID-19 situation in the Pacific, and the resolution of Samoa's leadership crisis, seeing Fiame Naomi Matafa become Samoa's first female Prime Minister. Then, next up, you'll hear from Dr Emma Shortis. Emma is a historian and an author, and she joined me to discuss her new book, Our Exceptional Friend. Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. We start this conversation considering the situation in Afghanistan where the Taliban have taken over and it is now a mad scramble for countries like the United States and Australia to get people out of the country. We then move into a conversation. We then move into an in-depth conversation about Australia's problematic but deep relationship with the United States. Then, finally, you'll hear from Guardian Australia environment reporter Graham Redfern. Graham joined me to discuss his recent reporting that goes behind the scenes to look at the Australian government's successful lobbying efforts to prevent the Great Barrier Reef from being listed as in danger by the UNESCO World Heritage Committee. Graham also explores the World Heritage Committee's decision to list the Keng Krachan forests in Thailand as a World Heritage Site. This decision has human rights implications, as the Karen people are reportedly being evicted from their homes in the Keng Krachan forests. It's a real joy to be joined by Nick McClellan. He is the Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story. He also um, has been a reporter for Ireland's Business Magazine, uh, which is based in Fiji. And Nick is very much in touch with everything Pacific, having lived there and reported there for so long. And he joins me now. I'm so delighted to welcome you back onto the program, Nick. Hi there. And how are you doing? Good morning, Amy. I'm good, thanks. That's good. Now, we just have so much to get through, so I'm just going to cut to the chase. Um, One of the major events that we did see in uh, recent times was a long-awaited trip that had been cancelled, obviously due to the pandemic, which was that uh, French French President Emmanuel Macron uh, was to visit French Polynesia. Um, He did so, and we saw some imagery of him being... um, you know, presented with kind of floral, uh, you know, necklaces and these kinds of things and being welcomed very warmly by the people in French Polynesia. Um, There was a lot of people hanging on his words in terms of uh, nuclear issues. So I wonder if you could take us through that visit, um, but then also the implications and the effects of the visit on the population there. Yeah, it's been a, a long time coming. Um, Emmanuel Macron visited uh, Australia and New Caledonia back in 2018, and he'd pledged that he would visit all of France's overseas dependencies during his first term of office. Um, I was due to go to Tahiti in April last year, April 2020, to report on the proposed France-Oceania summit, where Macron was going to meet with Pacific Island leaders 
and also meet with the government and people of French Polynesia. As you say, that was postponed because of the COVID pandemic, and it's finally come off at the end of July. Um, it's significant visit in a number of ways. When he was in Australia in 2018, Macron talked about France's Indo-Pacific strategy, the jargon, you know, where France is seeking to align itself with uh, um, the ANZUS allies, uh, with uh, um, other Western countries lining up against China in the Pacific. And Macron talked at the time about an India-Australia-France axis in the Indo-Pacific, basically to line up with major powers um, and France wants to maintain its presence in the region, both in New Caledonia, Wallace and Fortuna and French Polynesia. So that was a key element in the tour. Um, there were also a number of domestic issues in French Polynesia that the government wanted to talk about. Obviously, the COVID pandemic and uh, recovery from COVID, um, but also the legacies of nuclear testing. France, as we've talked about before, has conducted 193 nuclear tests in French Polynesia at Mororoa and Fungatov Atoll, and many local people, particularly uh, uh, nuclear survivors groups, were waiting to see what the French president would say about uh, France's responsibility for the health and environmental legacies. Well, what did they say? Because I know I was really keen to see whether there was any movement on this because there's obviously an ongoing legacy within the population and the environment because of these nuclear tests. There was some um, not as much as some people were hoping. Um, indeed, France tried to undercut the issue from the agenda to improve the profile in a number of ways. Firstly, at the beginning of July, they organised a round table uh, to discuss the nuclear issue, but they held it in Paris, not in Papeete, the capital of Tahiti. Um, and so many people who wanted to have a say on this important question couldn't participate. Um, indeed, a number of the opposition politicians, two former presidents, two members of French Polynesia's representation in the French National Assembly, the key groups, the Church, uh, um, Association 193, which works with nuclear survivors, Mururetato, which is the Association of Former Workers, Polynesian workers who staff the test sites, they all boycotted this meeting in Paris, thinking that it was basically a bit of a, a waste of time. Um, and the commitments that were made at that meeting weren't very strong. There was some pledge for funding for a, a commission called CIVEN, which is the commission that provides compensation for uh, people whose health has been affected by nuclear testing. Uh, France set that up in 2010. But in the first five years, CIVEN only approved 2%, 17 cases only of applications for compensation. So 2% and uh, veterans and uh, military veterans and, and workers who staff the test sites have been campaigning ever since that the, the system needs to be reformed, um, that it's rigged against people who can't provide the documentation needed and so on. Mm. Um, the big thing that people were expecting and hoping for, many, was um, that the president might say sorry, that as well as concrete moves around cleanup, around compensation and reparations, that there might be an official apology from France for the legacies. France for decades denied that there were any health effects from radioactive fallout. Now, of course, they admit that that was nonsense, that there are effects, um, but they're still trying to downplay this issue. And um, many people, particularly in the opposition and in the nuclear survivors groups, were very angry that there was no apology, nothing, nothing said. So there has been some moves around opening up the archives, around some extra funding for the Compensation Commission, but very little 
compared to what might be done to address this question. Mm, other- it's really a slap in the face to kind of hear that and then to read in your piece on Inside Story that in uh, on the 17th of July in 1974 there was a test, um, just one as an example, um, which spread uh, with the fallout spreading across as far as Tahiti and exposing uh, 80,000 inhabitants to hazardous levels of ionising radiation. So this is not a, a kind of limited um you know, effect. This has very wide-ranging effects. Absolutely. And, and for example, French Polynesia has the highest rate of thyroid cancer in the world amongst women aged 40 to 50. So people who were born during the, the era of nuclear testing uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, thyroid cancer, which is, is related to uh, exposure to ionising radiation is a, a major problem in French Polynesia with a much higher rate than you'd find you know, in other countries around the world. Um, similarly, there's a lot of concern about um, problems of cancer and leukaemia. And indeed, there's not a proper cancer register. That's one thing that the people were putting Macron on, um, that there should be uh, um, an effort to uh, set up a, a proper cancer register to uh, look at, you know, how many people are dying uh, from cancer. Um, the other thing the government of French Polynesia pushed when President Edouard Fritsch travelled to Paris for this meeting in beginning of J- July was co- a reimbursement for the Social Security Fund. It's called the CPS. It's their Social Security Fund, their welfare fund. And since 1985, over, over recent decades, the government of French Polynesia has spent 80 billion Pacific francs. That's about one billion Australian dollars. It's a lot of money um, putting out funding for cancer patients in French Polynesia. Now, that's just not people who've been affected by radiation. It's other cancer patients. But given the rates of cancer and leukaemia, thyroid cancer and so on, that people attribute to exposure to radiation, um, the local government has spent a billion dollars um, addressing this. And they're saying this is France's responsibility and France must reimburse the local government for the cost of this sort of thing. So behind the theatre of Macron's visit, and there was a lot of theatre, mm-hmm. literally kissing babies in the streets and uh, walking walking the ropes, shaking hands and so on with people, um, there was a, a, an underlying concern that France still has responsibility for its history in French Polynesia. Yes, well, it's true. A lot of the theatre was really reported and um, not as much on the nuclear issues, though I did see a little bit of it, of course, and including your piece, which is very extensive if people want to check it out on Inside Story. Um, one of on a, on a health-related note, uh, obviously there must be an incredible burden on the health system given how much um, these cancer rates have affected uh, pay, the cancer rates affect the entire population obviously and must mean that there is a demand on hospitals uh, in French Polynesia. So I wonder um, is that a concern given that um, after Macron's visit we've seen a huge uh, outbreak of COVID which seems quite linked there is, a, you know, French Polynesia has had a terrible, terrible time during the COVID pandemic, uh, both economically because it's a country reliant on overseas tourism, which has obviously been devastated by the closure of borders or attempted closure of borders uh, going back. They had a major surge of cases um, between uh, August last year and January this year um, with uh, many, many cases. Um, so French Polynesia has 
28,330 cases, which is an enormous figure for a country of only 280,000 people. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a lot of people. And just this week, um, in the last 24 hours on the latest figures, um, 1,294 new cases reported, four deaths. So that, that rate is, is, is enormous for, for a, a relatively small country. And as you say, the, the entourage that came with Macron, uh, who travelled from France to Tokyo to, to visit the Tokyo opening of the Tokyo Olympics before travelling on to French Polynesia, there's a lot of concern that um, it, it amplified the spread of the Delta variant. And as we know in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, it's a terribly contagious variant of the novel coronavirus. Um, so I was looking at the data yesterday and the... You know, before the Macron arrived in mid-July, the average over seven days was about nine cases a day of COVID. So it was certainly a problem, but under, under a level of control. But that surged enormously, the seven-day average of nine cases a day in mid-July. By the time Macron left at the end of the month, it was 28 cases a day. Um, and a fortnight later, just a fortnight later, uh, the, this week's seven-day average of cases is 839 yeah. cases a day. So that's an average across a week. So it's gone from nine cases a day in mid-July to 839 cases in mid-August, within a month. And it's a major, major problem. I've been, I'm preparing a story with a colleague in Tahiti about this. Um, two of the key elements of it is healthcare in Tahiti is under stress. Their main hospital has... They've allocated uh, just over 200 beds, 212 beds for COVID-related uh, treatment of people, um, including people going into ICU. Uh, the latest figures, only seven beds were still vacant. Um, and one of the, the features of Macron's visit was that there was, because of the movement of people around his visit, um, you know, there was a lot of spread to the outer islands. Mm. Um with uh, his grand entourage, he came with 150 people, you know, oh. journalists, security people, officials, advisors, and so on. Um, plus, of course, all the local dignitaries. People came together for uh, dancing and, and, and um, you know, cultural celebrations, enormous welcomes, crowds literally lining the street to say good day. Um, and that spread Delta. Um, and so you have a situation where he travelled to an island called Manihi, which is in the outlying Tuamotu archipelago, uh, not the main society islands where Tahiti, the capital is, but uh, to the outer islands. Money, he had never had a case of COVID, um, but just uh, days after his entourage left, uh, the first case of COVID was reported by um, uh, the nurse on Mahi, Manihi. Um, there are other islands, Makatia, Rangaroa, um, uh, Tikahau and others in the Tuamotu archipelago, which is a fairly isolated area um, where Delta is now spreading. Um, and it's very concerning because there are um, more extreme cases have to be medically evacuated to Tahiti, which um, places pressure on, uh, on the hospital system. So, look, this is, is, you know, really related to the fact that the people in French Polynesia don't control their country. It's still an overseas dependency, still a mm. colony, some would say, of France. And uh, so in terms of enforcing border controls, um, those come under the authority in many places 
of the French government rather than the local elected government. It just uh, has so many echoes and obvious you know, parallels with colonialism itself, you know, France bringing in the Delta variant and causing so many, an uptick in cases that are double the number of the cases we're seeing in Sydney each day now. I mean, it is really just so eerie to see that happening. And as you mentioned there, to point out that quite starkly, um, French Polynesia doesn't have that control that, uh, the colonialism legacy is still alive and well. Well, you see in uh, New Caledonia, which is much closer to Australia, it's one of our closest neighbours, they've managed the um, uh, the burden of, of COVID much better than French Polynesia, partly because they've got economic advantages. They can export nickel and, and so on in a way that they're not as reliant on tourism as French Polynesia. So the vectors of movement for, for, for people returning has changed. But the government of New Caledonia is currently headed by a pro-independence president, a guy called Louis Mapu, who was elected in July as head of a, uh, a government, multi-party government that's majority in favour of independence. And that government's just announcing that they're thinking of shutting down flights from Paris because of the concern about people arriving from France. Um, and under the Numera Court statute, which is the local governing statute in New Caledonia, which was an achievement from the Kanak independence movement, um, they have more control over uh, health quarantine at the border than exists in French Polynesia. So it's, it's, it's a case. But let's not forget, this is a problem, you know, wherever you are. Many Pacific countries have done well um, to manage the COVID pandemic. The smaller island states like Tuvalu, um, Samoa, Vanuatu and others have just got a, a handful of, of, of cases that they've caught at the border. But bigger countries like Fiji, um, even though they're independent and have uh, obviously uh, a much better health system than some of the smaller states, are still facing a terrible burden. Fiji, however, seems to be slowly getting its uh, uh, most recent uh, tragic surge of cases under control. You know, Fiji's had uh, um, 40,000 uh, more than 40,000 cases, nearly 400 deaths in a country of uh, around uh, 900,000 people. But they, in the last couple of weeks, through mass vaccination programs and more controls on movement, Fiji starting to get the situation under control. At the beginning of this month, they had about 1,200 cases a day. Um, just the day before yesterday, the latest figures I've seen was down to 467. Still an enormous burden on the health system of Fiji. Australia and other countries, China, uh, United States have been providing vaccines and health teams and so on to support the Fiji government. But they've gone past the peak of this latest surge, starting to get it under control, but still facing the same challenges that we do in Sydney and Melbourne in other Australian cities. Mm. Look, this is a global pandemic, but it really reveals um, the gaps between countries and within countries on a global scale. I think it's really important when we think about the tragedy that's happening to many people in Australia, we think about how it burdens developing country nations that are so close to us. Yes, well, we are fortunate to have, you know, a really sophisticated health system here because we've had a lot of wealth um, and built it up over a number of years. And even now it's, you know, one could argue it's, you know, chronically understaffed and underfunded. So it's really staggering to think that uh, Fiji and French Polynesia are dealing with such a huge burden of COVID cases. 
Um, and also I did see that uh, there were 26 deaths in the last 48 hours in Fiji as well, bringing their overall death toll to 394. So, um, yeah, it's good to see that the numbers are slowly coming down given how hard Delta is to kind of suppress. Um, so there's some obvious light at the end of the tunnel. I, you mentioned their vaccines, and I know um, Australia is trying to assist. I did see recently in the news that Australia had actually reached out to the United States in order to su secure some of their AstraZeneca supplies that they weren't using um, because they're not using AstraZeneca at this stage in the pandemic in order to replace the amount that Australia was going to give uh, to Pacific Island nations, for example. Um, what's your take and what's your understanding of the level of Australia's contribution and perhaps even New Zealand's in terms of really stepping up and actually providing support to our neighbours? Australia, it's a, it's a very contradictory situation. On the one hand, Australia has been providing a lot of AstraZeneca, particularly to Fiji. I think I haven't seen the latest figures, but it's more than 700,000 doses have been provided from Australia to Fiji, warmly welcomed by the government of Fiji, New Zealand a smaller amount. We've given, I think, 30-odd thousand to Papua New Guinea, which is a much bigger country, so less, less involvement there. Um, other countries have been providing uh, uh, vaccines to their dependencies. The United States has been very active in the northern Pacific. France, obviously, providing Pfizer to um, its countries. But the bigger picture is, is a long term. You know, we're going to have to cope with COVID into the future. It's clear that the pandemic will continue on into 2022. The need probably for booster shots or, or, or vaccine capacity to deal with new variations, as we've seen the shift to the Delta variant, which is becoming widespread around the world. And one of the things that people are very critical of is Australia's role in the World Trade Organization. A number of developing countries have been campaigning for, for, since last year for changes to um, intellectual property rights over the uh, um, technology, over the vaccine manufacturer and so on. And indeed, in, from our region, Fiji and Vanuatu have joined this international push from uh, South Africa, India and other developing countries to waiver the um, what are called TRIPS patents. These are intellectual property uh, patents over uh, COVID-related technology, drugs, pharmaceuticals, and so on. Because big companies like Pfizer and uh, uh, the manufacturers of AstraZeneca are doing remarkably well out of this pandemic. You know, billions and billions of dollars flowing towards the manufacture and distribution of drugs. And many developing countries are saying, we want to build up uh, the capacity to manufacture drugs cheaply rather than have to beg and borrow money to um, get them from major corporations like Pfizer um, and Wellcome and, and, and others who have been, you know, really profiteering, I would say, out of this pandemic. So you see Fiji and Vanuatu. Now, Australia in the past, last certainly last year, has opposed this bid by developing countries to get a waiver within the World Trade Organization. And indeed, the United States and other major countries did initially. The US Biden administration is starting to change its position. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to keep a, a, a sense of history and perspective about the bigger picture um, beyond the immediate battles. Dare I say, I'm, as we speak, uh, looking at the tragedy coming out of Kabul, um, you know, people desperately fleeing. 
what's going to happen to all the asylum seekers? Will they end up locked up on Nauru, on uh, on Manus? What's Australia's policy going to be to the to the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people affected by the the uh, transition in, in in Afghanistan? You know, Australia's role. You know, there's a lot of publicity about handing out vaccines, but what are we doing to support? vaccine manufacturing in major developing countries um, mm. in the world. And and I think uh, we need to be keeping those sorts of steps in mind. And that's really not that well discussed in Australia, um, despite the obvious generosity, which is widely welcomed, uh, for example, for the vaccines that we've uh, provided to Fiji, to Papua New Guinea and to some other smaller countries. Mm. I'm glad to hear at least there is some of that uh, happening. Clearly, there's room to increase our support and also clearly to many people in Australia, we do engage in a lot of navel gazing and forget about those in our direct um, immediate vicinity, including the Pacific uh, nations. One um, area where there's been a lot of political tensions, and we've discussed this in the past, was uh, and has been the Pacific Islands Forum. And so I know there's a lot that's been happening and did happen at the recent meeting that was to be hosted in person in Fiji. It was still hosted by Fiji over Zoom. Um, and I did see, you know, some interesting tweets and discussions about the, you know, behaviour of our Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his perhaps um, not understanding, you know, what is appropriate in terms of protocols over Zoom, um, for example, eating during the official opening of the meeting, um, which, as a reporter over there, Lajipova, Sherelle Jackson mentioned, um, is considered extremely rude in many Pacific cultures. So uh, apart from that being a clear faux pas, there's obviously a lot more going on of substance in those meetings, including uh, the Micronesian countries. So I wonder if you could share with us the kind of key uh, things that happened at that forum and what we should take from it. Yeah, look, it's the Pacific Islands Forum is the main political agency for the Pacific. Um, Australia, New Zealand and 16 island nations, um, including two French territories, are, are members, full members of the forum. And it has uh, a key role in trying to build a regional consensus around issues of concern, around the COVID pandemic, health response and around economic recovery from COVID, around uh, nuclear issues like uh, Japan's proposed dumping of uh, treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific from the stricken Fukushima reactors, uh, issues around maritime zones and fisheries, uh, maritime borders are very important on the agenda at the moment, and of course, most importantly, the climate emergency. And that's always been a, a source of tension within the forum that Australia, as the largest member of the Pacific Islands Forum, has a different agenda around climate policy to most of our island neighbours. Um, you know, Pacific countries repeatedly have called for urgent action to end the production of fossil fuels, particularly coal, the mining and export of coal, shutting down coal-fired power stations and so on. It's been a core demand because Pacific countries have called for uh, maintaining temperatures well below 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius uh, above pre-industrial uh, levels. So, you know, the Pacific's been talking about this for 20 years. Um, at the time that the most recent IPCC report has come out, you know, many people in the Pacific are saying, well, maybe we've been saying this for a long time, but there are, you know, 
um, this is a problem now, not decades into the future. So at the last face-to-face meeting in 2019, there was a huge brawl at the leaders' retreat where the presidents and prime ministers go behind closed doors for a meeting to talk frankly amongst themselves. I was there as a reporter in Tuvalu at the last meeting, and the argument went on long into the night because Scott Morrison was defending Australia's policy about coal and about uh, its very low targets to reduce emissions by 2030. Um, and now even the Biden administration is criticising Australia for its low targets. And when the Americans are outflanking you, you know that it's pretty pretty hopeless. Um, f- the transition has now occurred where Fiji is the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum under Varangi Bainimarama, the Prime Minister of Fiji. He takes over over the next year. And uh, last year's meeting was postponed because of COVID in Vanuatu. Once again, this year's meeting couldn't hold face-to-face because of the current surge of cases in Fiji. So they've held an online meeting for a day. They will hope to hold a meeting on the sidelines of the United Nations for those uh, leaders who go to the UN every year for the opening of the General Assembly session. And then they're planning, if things are are under control in Fiji, to have a face-to-face meeting uh, probably in January, late January sometime, um, to bring the leaders together so that they can talk and discuss about all these pressing issues. Two things out of the meeting, as you mentioned, important. One is a declaration about sea level rise and maritime boundaries. One of the major concerns for low-lying atoll nations is that um, they might uh, uh, lose territory um, because um, um, islands uh, and atolls would go under the water and currently under the International Convention on the Law of the Sea, countries, uh, you know, have have control over territory, and that's important for management of fisheries and other biodiversity, marine resources. Um, people are worried that sea level rise might literally make some low-lying atolls disappear into the future. And there's a declaration calling for changes to international law to recognise maritime boundaries um, as they are. Yes, I was just reading that statement. Um, does, was it, is it the case that everyone signed up to that statement? Yes, everyone, including Australia, um, has has made that commitment. There are significant global negotiations going on around amending and updating the law of the sea, which was first adopted in uh, 1982. Uh, first finalised negotiations came into force a few years after that. Um, so the law of the sea has been round, and under the law of the sea, countries have what they call exclusive economic zones. So that's 200 miles, nautical miles, around every piece of land. And for a country like Kiribati, it's only got 829 square square kilometres of land, but it's got three and a half million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone. Mm. French Polynesia is five archipelagos, tiny islands, but they're spread over a huge distance, five million square kilometres of ocean. And when we think about fisheries, about the potential for deep sea mining, a very controversial issue in the region, around uh, patenting life forms from the ocean, uh, around uh, geoengineering carbon, you know, these large ocean states are crucially important, not just for their own well-being and the livelihoods of people who rely on fishing, but about future, you know, geopolitics. And, And so... You know, for the the countries to come together to say we want to reform international law to recognise the way in which we will be disadvantaged by sea level rise, 
which is a problem being generated by the climate change, by the global warming that comes from the exploitation of fossil fuels by countries like Australia and China and the United States and the European Union. It's exceptionally depressing to think that these are the conversations that have to be had and agreements made uh, because of climate change and obviously Australia being such a major outlier, not just in the Pacific but in the world uh, in general. And as you mentioned there, Joe Biden, you know, singling out Australia and I know he did send a video to the Pacific Islands Forum as well to talk about climate change and their commitment. Um, before we finish up on the Pacific Islands Forum, I just wanted to check in on that issue that um, you mentioned earlier that we discussed previously about the Micronesian countries, Nauru, Kiribati, Marshall Islands, Palau and the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, I noted in uh, some Guardian reporting that the only Micronesian leader in attendance was the Nauruan president who apparently disappeared from the Zoom call uh, at one particularly perhaps significant moment. So I wondered if you could perhaps share your insights as to whether that was a significant moment, if that was a protest at all, and whether there's any hope of the Micronesian uh, countries coming back to the forum and participating. This is a major challenge for the forum. As you say, these five Micronesian countries announced their withdrawal in February, uh, February um, following the election of a new Secretary-General, uh, Henry Puna, uh, who's from the Polynesian nation of the Cook Islands, former Prime Minister of the Cook Islands. The Micronesians had put up a joint candidate, um, Gerald Zakios of the Marshall Islands. Uh, they felt that it was their turn, um, although there's no written rule that the, the Secretary-General's position should rotate. Um, and they've been very firm, particularly uh, Prime Minister Surangal Whips of Palau, Micronesian country up in the Northern Pacific, have said, we won't come back to the forum, we won't attend meetings until you change the rules about how the Secretary-General is elected and address many of our long-standing concerns as smaller island states. Uh, they're called Micronesia, micro, <laughs> the smaller states um, um, up in the Northern Pacific. Um, as you say, the President of Nauru uh, joined the Zoom call, only the only one of the five leaders from Micronesia. Um, he diplomatically absented himself from the speech, uh, from the Zoom call at the time that uh, Henry Puna, the incoming Secretary General, gave a speech. Um, and, um, um, you know, it was a pretty unsubtle diplomatic signal that there's still an unhappiness um, about the situation. Um, the current chair of the forum now, Varangi Bainimarama of Fiji, faces a difficult challenge. He, he pledged, uh, he made a reaffirmed an apology to the Micronesian countries that things hadn't been handled well, pledged dialogue, pledged ongoing support, but um, it wasn't resolved at this uh, roundtable meeting. It, I think, will take some face-to-face -face discussions, but those have been hampered by the fact that leaders can't come together during the COVID pandemic. So the Pacific way of dialogue, of negotiation, of taking time to resolve uh, disharmony and, and divisions, it's very difficult to do during a pandemic where people can't sit and talk honestly face-to-face -face with each other. And doing it over Zoom is, is quite complex, as we all know. Yeah. Um, so this is, a, this is a problem that's going to take some time to resolve, and yet it comes at a time where the United States is very actively trying to engage with the Pacific, fearful of Chinese influence in the region, where France, Britain, uh, Japan, Australia are amping up their military role in the region. There's a lot of geopolitics being played out in a region dubbed the Indo-Pacific, but many...
islanders feel, well, it's a lot more about Indo than Pacific. Mm. Um, it's a lot more about focusing on China than about our core security concerns, which is COVID recovery and climate. Yeah, that's so true. It's so true. Um, Nick, before we have to wind things up, I really wanted to touch on something we also explored last time, and that was a really momentous occasion. We saw uh, Samoa's first female prime minister elected uh, to that position. It's really obviously an exciting moment for uh, Samoa. And we did see, of course, that the incumbent prime minister um, was very <laughs> reluctant to give up his power. And it really did require court intervention, the country's court of appeal, to actually rule on the matter. So I wonder if you could update us about uh, Fiame Naomi Matafa and what's happened, uh, what brought us to that Court of Appeal moment, what actually was resolved and, and where she is at right now in terms of her leadership. Well, she is the Prime Minister of uh, Samoa, the first female Prime Minister of the country. She was, in fact, a former um, Deputy Prime Minister under Tuilapa, um, who was the, uh, the outgoing Prime Minister. He was in power for many years, first uh, won the prime ministership in 1998, um, and his Human Rights Protection Party had governed the country since that time, uh, very much uh, you know, holding the reins in many ways. Um, he resisted um, um, leaving office. Indeed, there was concern that he was acting a bit like Donald Trump, refusing to accept the results. Uh, there's been a battle of court cases over recent uh, weeks, indeed months, and um, the courts have clearly sided over time with uh, the incoming FAST government, as it's known. Um, the number of um, uh, electoral petitions challenging the results uh, have been determined by the courts. Indeed, just in recent days, another two uh, members of uh, Tuilapa's uh, HRPP party, the Human Rights Protection Party, lost their seats um, because of uh, uh, being found guilty of... Uh, bribery or corrupt practices, uh, vote rigging and so on. Um, and so the current balance of forces is that uh, the FAST party has 26 seats in the 51-seat parliament, so they have a majority. That's been approved by the courts. And uh, Tuilapa, finally, after after many uh, weeks of, of, of denying the obvious, has come now to publicly acknowledge um, the loss uh, of his position. Uh, not with good grace, but um, there's certainly been a transition. And indeed, uh, Naomi Matafa, um, uh, the new Prime Minister of Samoa, uh, attended her first uh, Pacific Islands Forum leader as the elected representative just uh, the other day. Mm, and I, I did see a tweet uh, from the Samoan official government account about, uh, I, I believe she met with our Foreign Minister Maurice Payne and discussed issues of women and girls, for example. So um, I wonder, has she received all of the welcome from everyone else in the region that usually accompanies these kind of major events? Very much so. I mean, she's she's recognised, she's been in politics for a, a long time, a long time Minister of Education uh, in Samoa. You know, she was Deputy Prime Minister in the, in the outgoing government uh, for, for many years until she broke away um, from her mentor, uh, um, Tuilapa. Um, she's pretty well known around the region and a very charismatic figure. Um, she now stands alongside Maurice Payne and 
um, former president of Marshall Islands, Hilda Heine, uh, women moving into positions as presidents and prime ministers around the region. Um, and you, you notice that um, uh, our own foreign minister, uh, Julie Bishop, then Maurice Payne, uh, and Nanaya Mahuta, the foreign minister of New Zealand, women are taking their place uh, in the public sphere in these uh, um, governments. Despite that, there aren't enough women in government in many Pacific countries. It's amongst the lowest levels in the world in terms of equality of representation in the, the region. So this change is really important for young women in Samoa and indeed in many other countries uh, who can see that uh, it's possible to uh, achieve high office. And um, that's, uh, that's a really important cultural uh, question as much as uh, a political Mm. Well, I'm glad we've finished on a positive note. I know it's a really difficult time for so many Pacific nations and it's great to see that there are some really uplifting and hopeful stories for women, especially in the Pacific. And there are so many brilliant uh, women as part of, you know, obviously each Pacific Islands culture. So it's great that they're finally getting um, that ability to engage in decision-making. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, Naomi has been around a long time in politics and, you know, obviously brings a huge amount of experience to the position. So it's uh, good to see that finally the real version of merit might actually be playing out for once in politics. So I thank you so much, Nick, for joining us and for taking us through these really vital issues and uh, making us hopefully understand the situation uh, for people in the Pacific a little bit more. And clearly there's a lot more to do. Thanks very much. It's a really dynamic uh, region, but it's really important to say people are responding to all these global challenges about violence against women, about the climate emergency, about responding to the pandemic. You know, people in the Pacific welcome support from countries like Australia, but they're not sitting sitting by waiting. They're right. actively engaged in, in addressing all these challenges. So, yeah, let's keep talking about it into the future. Thank you. Mm, my pleasure. This is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You are tuned in to 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, 102.7 FM on your dial. This show is Uncommon Sense. I'm Amy Mullins, and I'm joined now by Dr. Emma Shortus, who is an historian and an author, a published author of a book. It's her first book. It is out tomorrow through Hardy Grant Books. It's called Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. And um, this is an entirely unbiased review from me. It is quite literally a brilliant book. It is eloquent, incisive, uh, robust in a scholarship sense, and also just really frank and refreshing. And uh, yeah, I just absolutely loved reading every page of Emma's book. And so I ended up with a ton of notes, a lot of bolded sections and underlines and we're going to get to as much as we can uh, but I think it's such a huge testament to Emma's great intellect and also her wonderful ability to communicate these issues with us with the general public so a big congratulations to you Emma on this fantastic work. Oh thank you Amy that, that was such a lovely introduction yeah I'm really excited for the book to be out tomorrow. It is really fantastic and it's yeah, we'll get into it so people can tell just how fantastic it is in a moment. Um, but first up, we do need to 
acknowledge and just talk about briefly uh, Afghanistan. It is very, very much in the minds of everyone, I hope, uh, in a, in the world who has seen the videos, the images, the reporting on the ground from local Afghan journalists and also a few international journalists who have stayed back in Afghanistan to report about the takeover of that country by the Taliban. Um, and obviously there's a lot of complexity that goes into it. So I'll leave you to, to share that with us. But uh, it seems that the Americans almost have been blindsided by the fact that the Taliban could take over so quickly the entire country, including the capital, Kabul, and to see um, the head of Afghanistan flee the country with apparently carloads of cash is what the reports have said. Um, and we did see the Pentagon giving a media briefing this morning, our time, which basically said, and, and I'm pretty sure they really said this, this is a paraphrase, that they didn't accept, uh, expect that the capitulation by the Afghan security forces would be so absolute and so quick. Uh, do you think this was a, a really naive assumption to be making, especially given the history in Afghanistan? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not even sure naive quite covers it. I think, you know, anybody who follows American politics or even has a kind of a, a sense of American history and American power in the world sensed something like this coming, you know, sensed that this was possible, that this forever war would kind of result in in this really unspeakable horror. So it's it's not like this kind of result wasn't easily foreseeable given that history of American power and the way that American military interventionism works. I think specifically this, the speed with which it has happened is, is partly due to the Pentagon, so the kind of defence establishment in the United States, being so geared towards perpetual war and perpetual the perpetual presence of the American military in the Middle East that the contingency planning for an actual exit didn't happen properly. It didn't happen in the way that it should. So intelligence in that sense were taken by surprise by the speed of what has happened, but they really shouldn't have been. You know, this is part of a long history of the United States just completely misunderstanding the context in which they're, they are operating. And I think that goes beyond naivety to a kind of, I suppose, deliberate neglect and and a real and moral failing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely ignorance and and a complete moral failure. And you know, again to have that sense of American history, you know, to know that this is possible is quite different to seeing it really play out to see those failures, the absolute failure to learn those lessons of history is is just unspeakably horrific. Oh, absolutely. There are so many consequences. And I was looking back at, you know, the reporting on this and trying to piece together the timeline in my mind because we did see Donald Trump when he was president announce the US withdrawal from Afghanistan um, and then we saw when Biden came in the support for that policy and he set a timeline that was different from Trump's timeline of May this year. He actually um, moved it to a very symbolic date of September 11. So we've seen, obviously, that that hasn't necessarily worked out. Um, we had also seen these articles around, well, how are we going to get out um, the translators and the security personnel who've supported um, the Allied forces from Western nations? Uh, what are we going to do with 
those people? How are we going to support them? How are we going to close our embassies in an orderly manner that, you know, is safe and secure? I mean, these are things that were part of a public discussion, not even just a private confidential, you know, secret discussion. So it is pretty staggering looking on and looking back at what had been floated to see that uh, not only America, but even the UK is caught off guard and they're also um, trying to hang back to uh, get their people out. And even obviously Australia is another example where we've seen ongoing discussion of this issue for months and the Australian government has kind of just been seemingly dragging its heels. Yeah, and and I think quite rightly that has been condemned as a as an utter moral failing on you know on the part of Australia and those other allies in Afghanistan. But you know, unfortunately, again, I I don't think it's particularly surprising. We we've seen a kind of retrospective justification of the intervention in Afghanistan as you know being around human rights and women's rights in particular, but that was never the aim. That wasn't the no. original aim of, of the United States and, and Australia in going into Afghanistan. And I think since the beginning of, of the war on terror, we've seen a blanket and racist demonization of Middle Eastern people generally, not just the Afghan people. And you see that play out in a way that, you know, there has been this failure to protect even those Afghans who worked very closely with allied forces and, you know, by all accounts were integral to the success or, you know, that, of course, that's the wrong word, but worked integral to those operations. That failure to protect them is part of a long history of those moral failings in Australia as well, you know, where where I think it's 4,000 Afghan refugees have, have been refused permanent protection for a decade now. So that's part of a long pattern, part of a long abandonment and racist demonisation of people who don't look like, you know, the, the governments that are in charge of both Australia and the United States. And, you know, I argue in the book that that's, that's a central pillar of our alliance with the United States is this kind of racist othering of the rest of the world and seeing ourselves as not morally accountable for, for that alliance and, and the moral implications of, of what it does and the way it um, positions us to see the rest of the world. Mm, there's this very, very stark division between the so-called goodies and baddies. Yes. And um, and also it means that there's a lot of that also unfortunate term, collateral damage, uh, in the sense of Afghan civilians, for example, being caught up in a 20-year war where, you know, so many people have lost their lives because of these interventions. And no one would say that Afghanistan was doing, you know, particularly well in terms of their treatment of women and girls. Um, Clearly, there was a major, major, you know, suppression of women's rights and, you know, violence against women and all those kind of things um, with the Taliban beforehand. But we've seen locals on the ground who've been brave enough to speak out say that, you know, they are concerned because um, I guess the unintended consequence or side effect of US military intervention in their country was that a number of women had gained freedoms that they just didn't want to give up. And now a number of them have said they've had to go out to buy, you know, head-to-toe burkas in order to try and keep a low profile so that they don't get targeted by the Taliban. Yeah, that's right. And it is, you know, it is absolutely horrific to watch. And I think particularly viewed from Australia, you know, we understand, I think, that we are deeply morally implicated in that and in what is happening, particularly to women and children in Afghanistan. But in terms of a government 
a governmental response, you know, just doesn't seem to translate to concrete action, to helping people to get out. And I think, you know, there's a really, people would get a really clear sense from the statements the Australian government has made, the statements Joe Biden and, and the Pentagon have made that really, you know, they could see this coming, maybe the speed with which it's come has been a surprise, but generally they they are they can rest assured that their the political consequences, their domestic political consequences, will be fairly minimal. You know, there's such a disconnect between foreign policy and democratic accountability in both Australia and the mm. United States that, that the consequences are, are minimal. And you can kind of see in real time both governments hoping that this will fall out of the news cycle and, and you know, people will kind of move on and, and forget about it. And I think, you know, the war in Afghanistan has is now both Australia and the United States' longest foreign war. And, and I think we can overestimate the kind of attention that it gets in the United States, in American domestic politics um, and, and the general way that fatigue with those wars, fatigue with American military interventionism will, I suppose, kind of overtake this, this sense of moral responsibility that people are feeling now. Mm. Well, let's use this as a way into your book because I just read at about 6.30 this morning <laughs> a statement from President Joe Biden on Facebook uh, and I mean, it just really highlighted pretty much everything you point out in this book. So I thought I'd read it out so we can uh, sure. use it as a point of um, discussion. Quote, we went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago with clear goals. Get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001 and make sure Al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that a decade ago. Our mission was never supposed to be nation building. That end. Um, and I mean, <laughs> I just kind of was like, huh? Oh, you know, I mean, is this the most appropriate statement? I mean, it is pretty bold to say that right now, given the failures of America. And clearly, I mean, even in that statement, I'm not sure if Joe Biden is aware of what exactly he's highlighting about their role in the world. Yeah, it is. It is a really interesting statement. And I think that that phrase um, nation building is a really critical one because there's a long history of, of criticism and tension in the United States about America's role in the world and whether it should be focused on nation building, you know, on, on kind of building the rest of the world in America's image in this kind of liberal democratic republic um, in the in the sense of the very real sense of, of spreading democracy, as, as George Bush called it. So I think that phrase is designed particularly to solicit that response, to solicit that kind of fatigue in America with, you know, sending troops abroad and American troops dying for, for this cause. So so Biden is is very calculated in that sense. And I think that's that's where Biden shows us really that he is continuing the long threads of, of American power and American foreign policy and the way that it operates in the world. You know, I think there was a real hope that that Biden would be different, I suppose, you know, that he he would be so different to Trump. But in the sense of of that foreign policy and the way that America acts in the world, it, it's it's very similar. It's, you know, American intervention that's done without care for context um, and without a clear sense of what the purpose is. You know, I think initially Biden Biden is right that the, the point was to, to get Osama bin Laden, but that that mission creep happened so quickly. And that happened because the United States political system 
is geared towards perpetual war. You know, the momentum is always towards intervention and towards war and to ignoring, you know, I don't want to oversimplify, but to ignoring really the lessons of history and the, and the history of American power. So in that sense, I think Biden is really continuing what we've seen and also continuing, I think, that refusal to have a real reckoning um, with with what's happening. You know, he's he's being very, I suppose, dismissive in that quote you read, Amy, and he said... Yeah previously that he feels he would feel zero responsibility if if Afghanistan fell again to the Taliban. And again, I think that just tells you about the nature of American power and about the real refusal to to examine American exceptionalism and what it does to the world. So you, you will see genuine regret, I think, and genuine grief about what has happened in Afghanistan, but that isn't accompanied by that real genuine reflection and reformation of American power. No, there's, yeah, a a major absence. And one of the great points you make in this book is about, um, you know, this idea that we would get this massive relief when Trump is gone, Uh, Joe Biden would arrive on the scene, he's got some progressive ideas about climate change, Uh, domestically, he's trying to uh, address some of the inequality that exists in America, though that's a a huge task to take on. And um, obviously, people like Bernie Sanders would be perhaps better placed in a policy sense to, you know, make real changes. Um, But I I wonder about whether that has really um, been a major departure point. You point out in the book, that there's this real delineation between internal politics and then external politics and how America interacts with the rest of the world and, in fact, that there is not this major difference. So I wonder if you could expand on the thoughts that you had on that issue, particularly that weird um, distinction that they've got, this kind of difference uh, of approach in terms of the way they're approaching their politics domestically and internationally. Yeah, sure. I, I, it is really hard, I think, to to get your, to get our heads around. And I, you know, I shared in that relief when, when Donald Trump left office after that kind of horribly tumultuous time around the transition that, you know, Joe Biden is undoubtedly a more compassionate leader who, who you know, actually cared that um, half a million Americans had died in a global pandemic and, and really set about doing something about it. So I don't, I don't want to diminish the differences between those administrations because the, the differences are huge. But mm-hmm. as, you, as you're alluding to, Amy, the differences I think are mostly domestic. You know, Joe Biden's job is to look after the American people. That That is what he sees as his job. And I don't think he's wrong in that. But that that means exactly as you said, that there's a big difference, I think, between domestic policy settings. So, you know, seeing um, Joe Biden talk about white supremacy as a stain on the soul of the nation, that kind of progressivism and that kind of reform is, is focused inwards. It's not focused outwards and on examining American power. And I think from viewed from Australia, a, a useful way of trying to understand that is to, is to look at the issue of climate change. So I think when Biden was elected, elected in Australia, particularly for progressives, there was a huge sense of relief that, that maybe now you know, Australia would be forced to act on climate change because our most important security ally had elected an administration committed to, to, you know, arguably radical action on climate change, Australia would finally have to shift as well, you know, that effectively the US would fix Australian climate policy. 
Um, I, I argue in the book that because our relationship with America is purely focused on military threat, on understanding the world in terms of kind of binary goodies and baddies, we cannot expect that the alliance will work in progressive, positive ways in issues like climate change because military threat um, and threat from other people rather than kind of more nebulous threats like climate change or, or even pandemic because that is the sole focus. The Australian government can be assured really that any diplomatic pressure, any pressure from the US administration for us to act on climate change is going to be isolated to you know, particular climate talks, particular meetings to a kind of diplomatic pressure. It's never going to extend into the core of the relationship, which is about war, essentially. And and the Australian government knows that all too well. So that's why I argue that our relationship with the US is so toxic for Australian foreign policy, because it really reinforces, it encourages, it perpetuates the worst instincts in both Australian politics but also American foreign policy through our support, our unquestioning continued loyalty of that American military power. Yeah. And let's talk about this intense relationship uh, between Australia and America. So, um, in the opening chapter of the book, there's so many fascinating anecdotes about Australia's links, uh, certainly at a leadership level um, and the way that historically prime ministers have interacted and responded to American um, platitudes and and special hosting of ceremonies for Australians at the White House. And um, obviously Scott Morrison and Donald Trump were were pretty close um, politically in an ideological sense. Um, There are parallels and... um, things that you point out there in terms of the similarities and the foundations of that relationship. And one that is just so interesting and striking was uh, in particular a quote that uh, Donald Trump, then President of the United States, gave at a September 2019 toast at a dinner in honour of uh, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. He said, quote, our two countries were born out of a vast wilderness settled by the adventurers and pioneers whose fierce self-reliance shaped our destiny. And then you go on to point out that the former vast wilderness they had each come to govern had not in fact been wilderness at all, but lands long populated by First Nations peoples on whom those same adventurers and pioneers had visited deliberate genocide. I mean, it is really stark and it is a thread that's existing in existence throughout this book is the constant um, foundations of colonisation of genocide in both countries that both countries do share and how that they have great relevance for the way that we approach each other in terms of the country's relationships but also the policies that are enacted. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, when when kind of IR, sorry, international relations or, or political science analysts um, kind of go to the history of, of Australia's relationship with the United States, they go back to the treaty, to, to the Australia-New Zealand-US Security Treaty and its origins there and kind of look at the last 70 years. Part of what I wanted to do with the book was, was look more deeply at the origins of that relationship and why it is that we, that Australian governments kind of sought out the 
protection of a great superpower and a, and a superpower that's so far away. You know, why Australian governments looked so far outside of our region for this kind of protection from a threat that's much closer to us. And, you know, I, I'm certainly not the first person to argue this, but but a major part of the reason that Australian governments sought out protection was racism. You know, it was fear of the other in our region and, and, and looking for a white protector in the United States. And that is part of our shared histories, our shared values um, as nations, as, you know, nations that are founded on dispossession and, and genocide. And I argue in the book that the only way Australia would ever be able to really reform our role in the world and to to adopt, I suppose, a more moral approach to the world is to really face those origins and to understand that, you know, in the 1940s and the 1950s when Australia was looking out into the world with fear and racism, that part at least of that fear, that racist fear, is born out of a kind of, I suppose, unacknowledged fear that somebody, some other country, would come and try and steal the lands that we had already stolen so effectively. And, and what I think ANZUS does, what our relationship with the United States does is, is reinforce that legacy. It, it, it reinforces that legacy of racism and dispossession and puts us in a position where we continue to look out into the world and to look at people in our own country with fear and with racism. And the only way that we could really begin to reform that, to build a different role for Australia and the United States in the world is to, to really understand that, to understand what ANZUS and the Alliance what it is born out of and, and what it creates. And that is that is confronting, um, but it explains, you know, why Scott Morrison and Donald Trump had such a close relationship. It explains why Donald Trump could still say that, that you know, our two countries were, were born out of vast wilderness without any real pushback and or with a, you know, sense that, well, you know, Trump is grotesque and, you know, his politics are terrible, but we still need America. We still need America to protect us from something worse. And we really confront what we think that something worse is and why it is that we don't try and build a world where that something worse doesn't exist, where we don't have to be afraid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm speaking with Dr. Emma Shortis and we're talking about her book, Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. Now, Emma, you point out in this book that uh, this othering and this fear, the racist fear of certain countries across history, um, certainly Australia's fear, of them have shifted in terms of the target of, of our fears. And you, obviously at the moment that that fear is China, but in the past you say there have been other countries that have taken that position like Japan, Korea, Vietnam and Indonesia. Um, these are, you know, countries that we see in popular culture, in history, in um the social interactions between Australians and people who have migrated here, you know, the, the fears are expressed in very real ways. It's not just a kind of removed foreign policy debate that happens between, you know, so-called experts and politicians and, and the like and academics. This is something that has real life effects. And it's something that you do point out is that these otherings and fears uh, that are really based in and grounded in racism affect people today and also affected people in the past. Could you 
expand on that and the ways that it plays out, not just at this kind of high level strategic uh, zone, but also in the ways that it affects us today? Why should we care? Because I think some people might feel like a lot of this is very esoteric to them. Mm. Um, and although they may think about it and be concerned by it, they may not, um, you know, understand those kind of touch points here in the real world, I guess you would quote unquote call it, um, in Australian domestic politics. Yeah, look, that's right. And I think it, it's completely reasonable for, for people to see those kind of foreign policy questions as really distant because kind of, as we've said, there's very little de democratic accountability when it comes to, to foreign policy. But I think there are, as you say, Amy, there, there are very real consequences for people um, as a result of these foreign policy stances and the way we kind of categorise peoples as as enemies or, or friends. And you see that play out, particularly when it comes to China, which is, you know, the kind of, um, I suppose, the focus of, of the ANZUS alliance at the moment, because ANZUS always needs an external enemy and it's always a non-white enemy and China is is the focus at the moment. You know, you see the, the way that that is used, the way demonisation of, of Chinese peoples generally um, as a result of ANZUS results directly, you know, in the United States and Australia in incidences of hate crimes and violence against Asian Americans and Asian Australians. So you see that in, in a very real sense. But what I argue in the book as well is the way that the Alliance demonises other people, you know, be it Chinese people, be it Afghan people, um, the list is the list is pretty mm. pretty long. Um, what that foreign policy, what that kind of foreign policy does is is reinforce as well a network, a very dangerous network of white supremacy um, between countries in the West, but particularly Australia and the United States, where you see very de deep links and reinforcement and feedback loops between white supremacist organisations on both sides of the Pacific. And that plays out with very specific consequences. I think one of the most significant recent ones being the massacre in Christchurch, where an Australian man committed that that massacre and was directly inspired by events in the United States, by white supremacists, white supremacists in the United States who were acting in Charlottesville in Virginia. And that isn't divorced from the alliance because the way that those people demonise Muslim people in particular was reinforced and is continually reinforced by the war on terror and by the United States and Australia's response to 9-11. So we are, we are trapped really in this kind of horrendous feedback loop where the alliance, that kind of high-level, um, you know, geostrategic policy to, to kind of use that IR speak, reinforces this toxic politics on the, on the ground, so to speak, that has very, very real consequences for people. Mm. And let's confront that ANZUS treaty that we hear about all the time but probably never actually read. I mean, <laughs> I think I had to read it twice uh, for various assessments and that kind of thing. And I mean, I was never all that engaged on the ANZUS question, um, but I did find it really interesting that initially uh, it was obviously brought into effect or um, the meeting occurred in 1951. I believe it came into effect in 1952. Mm. And you say that all six signatories to the ANZUS Treaty were white men. 
um, that not really much has changed since that point, but that also a number of people probably don't actually examine what the ANZUS Treaty actually guarantees or does not guarantee and what the real nitty-gritty of the wording is. Mm. And you do go into that, which I'm so glad that you do. (laughs) So could you please, if you don't mind, and I can read out the wording if you don't have it in front of you in in your... uh, makeup um, studio <laughs> in the car, in the car. <laughs> so let me know um, but yeah I just love to go into that because it is so illuminating to this whole uh, myth around what we've actually signed up to. Yeah it is I mean, it is quite extraordinary you know even for someone like me who's kind of immersed in um, US Australia relations to actually sit down and read the ANZUS Treaty because this document, like this relationship that Australia's foreign and security policy and our role in the world revolves around, like this is this is the basis on which our foreign policy is built, is actually really short. Like it's only a kind of 11 articles, you know, a couple of pages. Hardly anybody has actually read it, including me, I have to admit properly, before I started writing the book. But you will, you will consistently hear from supporters of the, of the U.S., Alliance, and even people who are kind of mildly, mildly sceptical about American power, you will consistently hear that we need the ANZUS Treaty, not because of even of the whole thing, but because of just one article, which or I suppose supporters will say gives Australia a guarantee of American military protection. You know, this is the idea that we need this protector because we're a small or a middle power and we can't protect ourselves from multiple existential threats. So we need America kind of regardless of of what America does in the world. And this all centres around this article, Article 4, which I don't have the exact wording for, Amy, but, but in the in the book, as I say, it's not even the whole of the article necessarily that that people make this assumption about. It's really one word in the article, which is a, a promise that each party to the treaty will act. So they will act in response to an attack. And what this one word is taken to mean is that we have this guarantee that, you know, if we need America, if this like kind of tomorrow when the war began style invasion happens, America will come and rescue us. What I argue in the book is that that idea that America will come to our rescue is is just not true because a promise to act can mean absolutely anything. It mm. can mean like a strongly worded letter or it can mean like going to the UN Security Council and requesting a resolution. It doesn't mean tr- troops on the ground. It doesn't mean a, the, a guarantee of an, an American nuclear umbrella, which is often assumed. And so what I what I argue is that this kind of mythology around our you know perpetual security guarantee just completely distorts the way Australia and so many Australians see our role in the world and what we can do because we absolutely do not have a security guarantee for the United States you know the United States certainly might come to our rescue if if we needed them to um if this kind of perpetual existential threat does exist but the United States is only ever going to come to our rescue if they see it, if, you know, whichever presidential administration is in charge at the time, if they see it as in their interest. And you can certainly imagine scenarios where they don't, you know, where where you have an American president who's reluctant to commit troops because domestically it's going to be really difficult for him. Of course, it's always a him, um, you know, that they won't come to our rescue. And I think the assumption that they will just, again, reinforces that idea that we are constantly under threat, that we need to be afraid of other people in our region and really precludes us from thinking about the world in a different way, from, you know, approaching our region 
with generosity and empathy and in an attempt to to build a region and a world in which we don't have to feel afraid. Yeah, and and I was really interested in that line, and I won't read it all out because it's about five lines, but <laughs> one of the, um, the key bit that you mentioned there about acting, um, saying that declares, quote, declares that it would act to meet the common mm. danger, common danger. Exactly, so there's that yeah. shared threat that they have to have. It's got to be a common um, commonly held fear or danger. Um, and obviously, as you said, the ANZUS Treaty always needs a kind of enemy or a bad guy or a common threat, which it currently does have because China has been singled out. And you go through the book talking about this so-called rising China and how it has to be uh, in our mind a threat because it's rising. I mean, you point out the hypocrisy of this Um in throughout many pages in this book about the fact that just because China is rising does not mean that it's a threat and it doesn't mean that it wants to colonise Australia and bring its uh, supposedly separate, you know, values to Australia. I mean, obviously there are clear political differences uh, between the Communist Party in China and, you know, our parties here in Australia and their political system versus ours. But as we know, we've so many people who have migrated here um, from China. There are also a number of things that we share as humans. You know, there's a deeply shared humanity as well and and that there is this kind of um, increasing hypervigilance in the media, in political rhetoric, uh, in the way that we behave and react to the way that China behaves. So I wonder, could you tease out some of these points that you make in the book? Because I just really found it interesting. Um, and it's a, it's a conversation, unfortunately, that is not had enough, is to really confront these statements and to say, well, do they really pass the test in terms of uh, you know, being truthful. That's right. And look, that's part of the reason I think that, you know, it is a really difficult conversation to have. These are really complex, difficult moral questions. And, and it's kind of almost impossible really to, to write about or talk about China in Australia without confronting these really deeply held assumptions or, or without being accused of being an apologist for, for Chinese actions, for the, sorry, I should be specific, for the actions of the Chinese government. And, and I think what I, what I try at least to argue in the book is that having this kind of looming shadow of the United States behind Australia, whenever it is we are engaged diplomatically with the Chinese government or, or facing these questions of this kind of rising, you know, quote unquote, rising threat of China, is to kind of lock us into this position of seeing the world as, uh, you know, militarily and existentially threatening to us and to Australia. And that completely distorts how we see the Chinese government as compared to the Chinese peoples and the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. And it allows us to hide behind this kind of, I guess, curtain of, you know, Def being defenders of freedom and, and liberty, liberty and democracy in the world, which, you know, the United States has always set us up to be without really confronting our own moral complicity in, in the kind of dangers of the world and, and what it is that the Chinese government is doing. And again, you know, this is really, it's really difficult to talk about because of the kind of assumptions that we encounter, but so rarely in 
in Australian conversations about China, do we actually see or hear much honesty about, you know, what it is we think this threat from China is? So we talk in kind of coded terms about a rising China or geostrategic questions or the way that China uses economic coercion, kind of et cetera, et cetera, without facing, you know, the fact that the the playbook that the Chinese Communist Party is using is the American playbook. Nothing China does in the world doesn't have some kind of historical equivalent um, in the United States. And we really talk about that. And I think we really always also talk about the consequences, the potential consequences of what this kind of warmongering, what this kind of refusal to see the world in anything but kind of binary terms of of enemies and baddie, enemies and, and friends has for us. Because, you know, what? so what we'll see is departmental secretaries talking about the beating drums of war for Australia and but the protection afforded to us by the ANZUS Treaty. So you see a high-level bureaucrat's openly talking about war with China and the fact that the Americans will protect us from. And I just think that that is appalling in the way that it is so dismissive of the consequences of such a conflict and also in seeing a conflict like that as inevitable when it absolutely is not. And I just think that is that is one of the really clearly dangerous ways that our relationship with the United States sets us up for this environment of potential perpetual threat and seeing threat where there doesn't have to be a threat. And, and again, I just think it's, it's so damaging and so dangerous and, again, prevents us from approaching a country like China with um, complexity, with empathy, with nuance and with a view to building a sustainable relationship that's not based on threatening China with our, you know, big friend, the United States and its nuclear weapons and not forcing the Chinese government into a position where it feels it can only respond in kind. Because again, I just think this is incredibly dangerous. And when we see people so cavalierly talking about a war with China, we see the same kind of historical mistakes of, you know, well, and, and the questions I ask in the book are, well, why aren't we talking then about what the consequences of such a war would be? You know, what would be the mission? How would we know when the war was over? How would we stop it from getting to mainland Australia? They're the kind of questions that just kind of get dismissed. And that I think is really, again, really dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you point out one in particular example um, whereby the Chinese government was pursuing its own economic and political interests through trade policy uh, when they temporarily banned Australian coal imports in response to many Australian political provocations, which I'm sure we'd all be pretty familiar with. And they were treated as entirely one-sided attacks, you say. And then you go on to say, quote, a sovereign country using trade policy to further its own interests, which the United States and Australia do all the time, is framed not as the normal state of affairs, but as something exceptionally belligerent. Uh, And that to me, really highlights the way that Australia in recent years has responded to China and increasingly so is this idea that somehow everything that China does is exceptional and that it is morally worse um, and unprecedented in some way than Western countries. And it's not to say that what they're doing is okay, but Mm. it's uh, really very unfair to say the least that we have this kind of take on the behavior of China when we don't examine our own actions, our allies' actions in the same light. 
That's right. And that's, I mean, that's what I try to argue in the book that, but that both things can be true at once, that we can absolutely condemn the actions of the Chinese Co- Communist Party um, when it comes to, you know, perhaps what they're doing in um, the South China Sea. And we can ask moral questions about what the Co- Chinese Communist Party is doing while still acknowledging that, the, you know, the reason that they are able to do that, to take those actions, to use economic coercion is because of a global economic system that the United States built to serve its own interests and that Australia has always supported the United States in doing that. And and also, as you say, Amy, you know, that the United States has a long history of doing exactly the same thing, of using its economic might to coerce other nations into, you know, adopting its own economic systems or to joining it in um, its perpetual wars. And, and really examining Australia's complicity in that, I think, is essential really to, if if we want to reform the way that Australia operates in the world. But but the sheer hypocrisy, I think, in, in the way that we have this conversation about China is is really is really stark to me. And it is often just kind of very thinly veiled racism. Um, our refusal to kind of acknowledge the similarities between what the Chinese Communist Party does and what the Biden administration or the or the Trump administration does is is at its heart deeply racist. And I think we need to have an honest conversation about why that is, you know, about why we think American economic coercion is fine, but Chinese economic coercion is not, or why we think American oppression of human rights, which happens again all the time, why we think that is okay or that is forgivable, why we think the Trump administration is forgivable, why why we think it's, you know, forgivable enough that our head of state can go over and have posh dinners and talk about how much we love the United States, but we can't do that with China. You know, why I think we need to have an honest conversation about why that is and the consequences of that. Yeah. And it all throughout this book, I was thinking there there was another kind of key party to this ANZUS Treaty, mm. which was New Zealand. And, you know, I all the way through was going, gosh, New Zealand is just this interesting comparison in terms of the road taken that was very different. And, you know, and you do highlight that at the beginning of Chapter 4, uh, which looks at the fact that New Zealand, you know, had a really strong commitment to being anti-nuclear, anti-nuclear weapons in particular, uh, and that they really did take a stand against the United States in the 1980s. And it all kind of came to a head. Uh, I was just fascinated about the standoff, really, between the two countries, um, New Zealand and the United States, and how essentially New Zealand exited ANZUS uh, we didn't really change the name because I guess that would make it Oz, as in AUS, which probably wouldn't work. Um, but I, could you share with us the, the alternative way of doing things and how New Zealand have somehow managed this legacy, this colonial past that they also have, mm. um, and also that relationship with the United States and how they've really said, well, you know, what have been the consequences? You know, have we been attacked by this foreign threat that we were scared of? You know, what are the consequences of not having this supposed guarantee that exists in the ANZUS Treaty? It is It is a really, I think it's a really interesting kind of illustration of, of possibilities, I suppose, what, what New Zealand did. Because you're right, you know, New Zealand was 
was there in the, in the middle of the ANZUS Treaty right up until the 1980s when a New Zealand Labor government was elected that had this a very strong moral commitment um, against nuclear power and nuclear weaponry in particular. We've got to remember this is, you know, one of the heights of the Cold War. Ronald Reagan is president and, and we're kind of living, I suppose, under the threat of nuclear apocalypse. So the New Zealand government uh, basically refused United States submarines and ships entry into its ports because the Americans refused to say if they were holding nuclear weapons or if they were nuclear powered. And and this was astonishing at the time. You know, this is the tiny country of New Zealand standing up to the Reagan administration in the middle of the Cold War and saying, no, get out. We don't want you. We don't want your weapons here. And the Reagan administration was furious, absolutely furious, you know, just could not believe that this was happening and kind of tried really to call New Zealand's bluff and said, well, fine, you're kicked out of um, the ANZUS Treaty. You know, we're not going to uphold our commitments to you in the ANZUS Treaty, expecting, I think, that the New Zealand government would cave and say, oh, okay, well, we need your military protection, so, you know, you can come. But they didn't do that. Um, and the, the New Zealand Prime Minister, David Lange, was kind of, was kind of hilarious in in his honesty, I suppose. He, he basically said, well, that doesn't matter because New Zealand doesn't face a threat from anyone and even if we did, there's no guarantee that the United States would come to our rescue anyway. And and history, you know, at least so far, has, has proven him right. New Zealand faced very little consequences. Uh, you know, obviously it hasn't faced a military threat and, and even in the diplomatic sense, you know, hasn't faced uh, great consequences from the United States, um, you know, has at the moment a, a very, I think, effective and close relationship still with the United States. So I think that's a really interesting example. But I also, you know, I would also say that Australia and New Zealand are very different. And, and Australia's deep security enmeshment with the United States then and, and even more so today almost kind of precludes Australia from having that kind of reckoning with the United States without a, without potentially very different consequences. You know, the United States has a huge military presence in Australia and, and any attempts to extract that historically and I think going forward would be met with fierce resistance from the Americans. Yeah, I'm speaking with Emma Shortis and as I said earlier, we're talking about her first book, which is being released tomorrow. It's called Our Exceptional Friend. Um, Emma, one of the interesting parts of Australian history, very interesting parts, and some people listening would have lived through it, mm. was the period of the Vietnam War and also Gough Whitlam and his prime ministership. And he had some very controversial um, and radical policies. And you do highlight in the chapter on Pine Gap in particular that um, base in the Northern Territory that really um, is the hub of American military intelligence and uh, operations in Australia. And the fact that, you know, Whitlam did provide some level of resistance uh, to the Americans uh, in various ways. And I just was really interested in that point because it's very rare if ever, to see an Australian Prime Minister provide any form of resistance. So I wonder if you could comment on that and, you know, the significance um, historically of at least that occurring. Sure. It is It is a really significant historical period. And, and you know, most Australians are, of course, aware of the controversies around the, the Whitlam government. But I think what often gets lost in, in that conversation about 1975 is is the lead up to that and how so much of the of the um, 
that tumultuous time kind of stemmed out of Whitlam doing exactly as you say, Amy, and and standing up to the Americans. And he did that in a number of ways, particularly around the the Vietnam War. So one of Whitlam's first kind of foreign policy acts was to write to the Nixon, Nixon administration and condemn its bombing campaign of North Vietnam, which was, um, you know, a, a, a bombing campaign with horrific consequences, horrific moral consequences. And um, Whitlam was opposed to that. So he wrote to Nixon about it and Nixon was furious. You know, he couldn't believe that this upstart Australian prime minister dared to, to write to him in this way. And and the relationship really deteriorated from there um, to the point where Whitlam said that the Australian government was not going to renew the lease that allowed Americans to have this joint defence facility at Pine Gap, which is an incredibly secret facility, um, which was originally set up as part of the, the Cold War of America's kind of defence and spying infrastructure set up against the Soviet Union that continues to operate today. And this is where we can see that divergence between Australian and New Zealand experiences with the Americans, because this um, attempt, I suppose, to assert Australian sovereignty when it came to that joint defence facility was met with a fierce wall of resistance and absolute fury from Richard Nixon, who, you know, we now know considered basically trashing the alliance altogether and visiting all kinds of consequences on the Australian government. And we know that, yeah, history kind of overtook things and um, the Whitlam government was sacked and then the Fraser government subsequently renewed that Pine Gap lease indefinitely. So so the Americans now have access to this joint defence facility indefinitely. And I think, you know, for me what that period illustrates is the way, you know, partly in the way Australians talk about our own history is that, you know, Whitlam cops so much of the blame for the deterioration in that relationship, you know, that Whitlam made political miscalculations in kind of provoking the Americans and the Nixon administration in particular. But really what it highlighted to me is, is just how much Australia and Australian governments are subject to the whims of American presidents. You know, Nixon reacted with such rage towards Whitlam, with such a deep hatred that that he kind of effectively had this tantrum and, and was willing to inflict all kinds of diplomatic consequences on the Australian government because it did something that he mildly didn't like. And and that that hasn't changed. You know, Australia, given our security enmeshment with the United States, is is basically kind of subject to the whims of whoever is in the White House. And because of Pine Gap, that means we're also deeply implicated in that one person in the White House's ability to do things like launch a nuclear strike, you know, for someone like Nixon to have a tantrum and push that big red button. And and the question of how and if Australia could extricate ourselves from, from that kind of implication, I think, is a, is a very kind of difficult and confronting one. Mm. And you point out, you know, that Australia would be politically and morally implicated in any of those kind of actions that are taken potentially or even likely unilaterally uh, and even had been floated um, to have escalated when, you know, that example of um, Donald Trump using drone strikes to kill uh, a leader in Iran that potentially would have sparked off a war against Iran or major conflict and Australia, you know, was caught off guard um, and you, you know, examine the response that was happening in the media, in commentators who were just saying, oh, gosh, you know, I mean, 
obviously it's so hard to manage for Australia when you've got a president who's being unpredictable. Um, and it was kind of seen as this weird aberration and fuel a sigh of relief when we're not drawn into the conflict. But you also look at that hypothetical of what if we had been and, you know, the fact that we are really actually implicated. And and I guess that brought a historical point that uh, Whitlam and that event, those events and that era um, was making really is that he was making a moral judgment on America and that that's what was so unpalatable to America. Yeah, that's right. And and I, I probably should have said earlier that part of Whitlam's object, objection stemmed from a scenario in which the United States had gone to, to high alert, you know, had put all its nukes on alert in the Cold War. And it became clear that the United States could, if it wanted to, launch a nuclear a nuclear strike using those facilities at Pine Gap without even telling the Australian government that that's that was its intention. And and Whitlam was horrified by that, as I think many Australians would be. Um, and you see supporters of of the alliance say, "Well, we have such a close relationship with the Americans. You know, they wouldn't do that to us. We have a consultative relationship. This is a joint defence facility. We would always be consulted should the the American, you know, whoever is in charge in the United States." decide to do this. And I think, again, kind of history shows us that the United States doesn't consult. You know, it often acts unilaterally in, in its military interventionism. I think that the killing of Soleimani in Iran was, you know, a classic example of that, of the of the United States administration taking a decision that, that it saw in its interests and just, you know, not even bothering to inform its allies that that's what it was doing, which has significant consequences, you know, for Australians on the ground in, in Iraq and in the Middle East, um, but also for foreign policy. So there's no indication that an American administration would consult the Australian government about the actions that it's going to take. And then even more broadly, you know, our alliance, our security enmeshment is kind of really set up to support the Americans and presidential administrations in those decisions regardless of, of why or how they're made. So you will see prime ministers say repeatedly that, you know, should the United States go to war in North Korea, then, you know, as Malcolm Turnbull, who was prime minister at the time, said, you know, we would go with them in terms of defence. He said uh, Australia and the United States had drawn, uh, joined at the hip. And we saw that with Iran, you know, we see this kind of performance of debate about whether, you know, should Donald Trump go to war with Iran, if Australia would join them, you know, the, the Australian government is considering this very seriously, we will consider any requests that come from the Americans on their merit, and we have this whole kind of dance. But, you know, we know that it's inevitable that Australia will follow the United States into these wars. And, and part of the reason for that is because you know, the reasoning, I suppose, is this assumption that we need to support the United States in whatever it does so that they will protect us, so they will provide us with this kind of military guarantee. And I just think that that is such a morally bankrupt way of, of seeing the world and, and our role in it. And, well, one of the areas that America won't give us cover in uh, necessarily in a political sense, is on climate change, mm. which is a new thing. Um, and, I mean, that is one point that has been emphasised by the media is, well, surely America is going to drag Australia into climate action. We haven't really seen a huge amount of shifting, uh, definitely not in action, a little bit in rhetoric, uh, and obviously things have been coming 
to more and more of a climactic point, mm. given that we've seen the latest IPCC report being delivered, uh, which is really dire, to say the least. Mm. And then, of course, moving forward to Glasgow and the next UN Climate Summit, which is coming up as well. I mean, we've talked about the negatives and, and the difficulties and the problems that are inherent in this, you know, tied at the hip relationship. Are there any positives on that climate front? Is there any reason to believe that there would be, that that tension in that regard might actually produce results or outcomes for people who are actually concerned about climate change? Look, I, you know, I think certainly there is hope. And, and as you said, Amy, you saw we saw an immediate shift in in rhetoric, if not actual policy, when the Biden administration was elected. You know, I, it was really striking to me that when the Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave a press conference congratulating Biden on being elected, elected, the very first question he got after that statement was about climate change and whether Biden's radical climate policies would, you know, mean a shift in Australian climate policies. So I think that perceived pressure is important and you can see a shift in the way the Australian government is talking about climate change generally, you know, albeit with a focus on technology and technological solutions. What I what I argue in the book is that we really can't hope for the United States to fix climate policy and Australian climate policy. And, and that's really for a number of reasons. You know, Joe, Joe Biden has kind of declared that the United States will return to global leadership on climate change. And I think that, you know, the Australian government is aware in some ways of the, the lessons of history in, in that sense because they know that US administrations have done that before. The Clinton administration declared that it was going to be a global leader on climate change. It went to the Kyoto Protocol negotiations and negotiated the first real global ag agreement that would mandate cuts to greenhouse gas emissions and then, you know, failed to get it through Congress in the United States. The United States never ratified Kyoto. So we see this kind of cycle, I suppose, of, of global climate leadership from the United States where this, there's this declaration of return and then a retreat. And I think the Australian government is banking on something similar happening again. You know, there, we know that there are uh, at least elements in the Morrison government that are hopeful and confident of a Trump or a Trump-like return. And so there's this kind of feeling, I suppose, that the Australian government can really just wait out any kind of diplomatic pressure from the United States when it comes to climate. Um, what I what I would say, you know, in order to not just be completely negative about it, because I'm I'm not, but what I would say is that we shouldn't necessarily look to the United States for this kind of global leadership. And what's very different between now and, you know, the 1990s and the Clinton administration in Kyoto is that the rest of the world is also lined up behind some form of climate action at least. So you see all of Australia's major trading partners, the United States, the European Union, the United Kingdom, South Korea, Japan, Canada, et cetera, committed to some form of climate action. And it's that kind of collective pressure, I think, that may force a change in Australian climate policy. But what I what I argue in the book is that, you know, Australian recalcitrance, recalcitrance on climate is is deeply tied to our foreign policy more broadly and the way that Australian governments see the the possibilities of foreign policy. And that again 
revolves around the United States. So any kind of reform in Australian climate policy, in Australia's moral role in the world, requires really examining what it is the the alliance with the United States does, not just for, for questions of military security, but for these broader questions about climate change as well. You know, we can't separate these things out. Yeah. Well, you've brought me perfectly to my last question, Emma, so thank you, which was looking towards the future and also reflecting at that higher level and and really having a bit of self-awareness, I guess, at a foreign policy level and a domestic policy level, but particularly foreign policy, if we're thinking about what could be a way forward, uh, if we accept that there are some really problematic aspects of this situation that we have been in for, you know, a number of decades now. Um, And if we want to start to imagine a different way of doing things, what is that potential way? Because you do examine that in the last chapter is to uh, look at those proposals that have been put forward and there'd be a number of people who've, you know, made various comments, including uh, Malcolm Fraser, the former Prime Minister who even wrote a book on it uh, before he died. There is this kind of idea that we could have a foreign policy independence and you talk about the fact that you wouldn't necessarily say we should just trash the ANZUS Treaty. So I wonder what would your reflections be? What would some of your conclusions be? Obviously, you don't have to give the whole game away. We can <laughs> let people read the book, but just to kind of close out this chat. Sure. It is, it's It's a really difficult question, of course, Amy, you know, and I don't know that I have a satisfactory answer, but I would say, you know, I don't think trashing ANZUS is, is the answer because, you know, ANZUS could be gone tomorrow, but the structures that allowed ANZUS to exist, the structures that allow one man in the White House to decide the fate of the world still exist. And so even, you know, within those structures, Australia exercising a bit of independence while potentially it could be a really good thing, you know, for me, I think is not enough. I think we're entitled to ask for more, you know, we're entitled to imagine a a better world and a better future for Australia in it. And, And what I argue is that, you know, we can look to the history of Australia in the world. We can look to various points in time where, you know, various Australian governments, for example, have opposed things like apartheid in South Africa and have stood up to um, the Reagan administration and the Thatcher government in the UK and said, no, we take a moral position on apartheid in South Africa, which had really significant global consequences for, for the longevity of that regime. So independence certainly is possible. But I argue that we we can and we should be asking for more from Australia in the world. And, and doing that, again, is going to require going back to the history and the origins of not just ANZUS, but Australia's role in the world generally, and really honestly examining the deeply racist origins of the way Australia and Australian governments in particular have seen the world and confronting that before we can begin this kind of process of radically reimagining the world that we live in. I think how we actually do that is a really difficult question that I don't have the answer to, but I think it has to be, it would have to absolutely be a collective project. You know, it's not leaving foreign policy up to those six white blokes in a room in 1951. It's about democratic accountability and this radical reimagining of what Australia's role in the world can and should be. Mm. 
Well, you've helped open up the space for us to have that discussion publicly and hopefully I cross my fingers at higher levels in a political sense uh, through this book that you've just written called Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States, which is officially released tomorrow through Hardy Grant Books. Emma, as always, it's a pleasure, but this book really is, I truly believe, a really brilliant contribution, a meaningful contribution, and I do hope that people can read it if they fi find themselves interested by what we've just been talking about and want to learn more because there's a great deal of detail we haven't yet got to naturally um, because this is such a, a nuanced book. So thank you so much for everything you've done. Oh, thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, the coronavirus pandemic has easily overtaken some of the very concerning issues that have been happening uh, environmentally in the world, including here in Australia. And to talk about these environmental issues is Guardian reporter who focuses on the environment in his reporting, Graham Redfern. Uh, I welcome Graham now and thank you so much for joining me, Graham. No worries. Thank you, Amy. Great to be here. I'm sorry I'm not locked down. No, <laughs> did you just not, get I'm out of Brisbane. lockdown? <laughs> I'm in Brisbane, yeah. We're not, I feel left out. Actually, no, no. It's, you it's you are a bit left out. Yeah. It's like there aren't many left in your club. I know. Um, we're, we're a bit exclusive up here now. It is, yeah. Well, I mean, you're going to have to fight WA for the grand final, it appears. Mm. So uh, we'll have to see what happens with that. But um, I'm glad, at least for Queensland's sake, that you got on top of that Delta outbreak because it did look particularly concerning. It did. Um, yeah, we were a little bit worried here. Um, uh but um, I don't know, we, we kind of our trials and tribulations are, uh, yeah, nothing to what, what Oakley and Victoria and New South Wales are going through. Mm. And, um, Graham, I know, you know, that obviously the Great Barrier Reef is such a significant part of clearly in the environment in Queensland and it has some amazing rainforests and there are so many beauties within Queensland in an environmental sense but obviously the Great Barrier Reef is one of those very famous great uh, you know features of Queensland's environment and and globally so so I mean this is an area which is not only having ex ex a huge amount of environmental value but obviously it does have uh, economic value to the state as well in, in the sense of tourism when tourism is actually allowed. Uh, and obviously I'm sure Queenslanders love to see their own reef. Um, but as we know in recent years and as you've reported on and, and others have reported on, we've seen many m events of mass coral bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. And Obviously, there are scientists in Queensland and beyond monitoring these bleaching events and also looking at the drivers of bleaching and clearly the warming, um, certainly ocean warming caused by climate change is one of those major drivers. So it wasn't that surprising to the population to hear that UNESCO, a UN body, was thinking and proposing to have the Great Barrier Reef listed as, quote, endangered 
danger. Um, so why do you think the Australian government was supposedly caught offside? Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure they were. Um, uh, Susan Lee, the Environment Minister, uh, claimed that uh, her department had been blindsided by this recommendation. And the way that it works is UNESCO uh, pulls together um, technical and sort of scientific reports um, from the IUCN, which is what their, um, uh, their science advisors, um, and, uh, and, but also from the government's own reports. Um, so we have like the, the outlook report for the reef. Um, we have water quality reports. And they pull all this stuff together um, and, uh, and, and make a recommendation. And the recommendation was that the World Heritage Committee should put it on the endanger list. There's like a, uh, a, a trigger for it, um, for an endanger listing. And it's if a site uh, faces a potential or ascertained danger. Um, and UNESCO said the reef was, was facing ascertained danger. Um, and so it should go on the list. Um, the last time uh, this sort of sort of Damocles hung over the Australian government on the reef with this endangered listing was sort of 2014. So it's been sort of suggested that this might happen before. Um, and, of course, since then, we've had these back-to-back -back bleaching episodes um, caused by, as you say, uh, warming oceans, uh, caused in turn by uh, us burning too many fossil fuels, um, we had these three bleaching events, 2016, 2017, and 2020. Um, so um, it, it's been coming. Um, and this was the first time the reef had been back sort of before the committee since the, since, since the last event, uh, since the last meeting in 2015 when they, when they discussed it. So this is the first time the reef's come back in five years. In those five years, you've had these mass bleaching events. Um, and at the same time, the government... Um, the the the, the uh, programs to improve water quality on the reef. They've got a bunch of targets, um, and UNESCO said that on water quality, the, the, everything was happening a bit too slowly. Um, now, Susan Lee claimed this when she said the government was blindsided. Um, she said that UNESCO had given her department some assurances that the reef wouldn't be recommended for this listing um, as early, so only a few weeks before. Um, before the recommendation came out. Uh, now, actually, UNESCO de denies that. Um, and UNESCO says, well, Australia should have seen it coming. But, but there it was. Um, so uh, the recommendation came, comes out. Um, Susan Lee goes on the offensive. And then we get this, um, this huge lobbying effort um, backed by the, um, backed by the federal government. Yeah, and I mean, you pointed out in your reports that this report that was created by UNESCO and put forward to the committee, the recommendation that it be listed as in danger, that's something that's been in train in terms of the consideration of the updated science, uh, the ongoing monitoring that UNESCO does in terms of the situation for each of these cases. This is not something that just kind of comes out of the blue. And, um, and one thing that seemed to have been indicated that uh, you also mentioned in the report is that um, the federal environment minister um, said that the decision was flawed and that it was potentially motivated by politics, uh, somehow implying that because China 
was hosting the committee meeting um, that that could potentially be a motivation um, because obviously we're at a very much a diplomatic low between China and Australia. Uh, So many people who follow politics uh, at that domestic and foreign level would know that that's not possible for something uh, that's been happening since, as you say, about 2015. Um, it does take a long time for these decisions to be proposed or um, proposals mm. to be made. You know, that this isn't just some kind of last minute, uh, last ditch attempt by Beijing to anger Australia. Yeah, um, I, I, I think the, the, the statement that, that maybe there was politics at play was itself a a political statement, you know. Um, uh, you, I, I, for what it's worth, I put it to UNESCO, um, uh, uh, and they flatly rejected it. We, there needs to be an understanding, though, of, of sort of the process. It's a bit dull, but but um, UNESCO uh, puts the report together, gathers in the information, gets its advice from the IUCN, which is a conservation, an international conservation body. Um, and and then they make their recommendation, which they send to uh, the World Heritage Committee for it to consider. And yeah, China was uh, is the chair was the chair of the last meeting. Um, so the, the processes under which, like the UNESCO, were making the decision was was nothing to do with the World Heritage Committee or China's chair of that committee. It happened before that. Um, uh, uh, you know, much more likely, um, a much more likely scenario here is that, hey, um, you know, uh, we had the impacts on the reef that climate scientists and marine biologists have been warning us about for a long time. Those uh, impacts uh, rolled out from 2015, and uh, hey, presto, um, it's still in danger. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even, it, you know, it's even more obvious um, after those bleaching events. Um, so. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure about the the the, the China issue. Um, funnily enough, the the government, well, Susan Lee anyway, would would not actually uh, explicitly say it was China what did it, um, uh, but she didn't need to because um, essentially uh, um, some of the conservative media uh, did that sort of ran those talk, talking points on the government's behalf. Yeah, um, yeah, as is often the case. Yeah. yeah, and one of obviously you mentioned there that Susan Lee took uh, a trip or multiple trips, I guess you could say. Uh, it was an eight-day lobbying trip uh, during mm. this pandemic. So, I mean, first of all, it's kind of staggering that this was possible, uh, but it appears um, from the reporting that she had met ambassadors from eighteen countries, either face to face or virtually, and there's a a great Guardian graphic in one of um, the reports which shows the trip that was taken, um, which included places like Budapest, Paris, Madrid, Sarajevo, uh, the Maldives via Oman. Um, These countries that uh, Susan Lee was meeting with, um, you know, they were obviously key to that committee. So I wonder if you could, Mm. I guess, lift the veil of what was going on there. So, yes, um, most of those countries that you've mentioned, they're all um, members of the World Heritage Committee. So the World Heritage Committee uh, elects members 
um, uh, on a regional basis, usually over six years, but actually normally countries serve for about three. Um, and yeah, she she got on a diplomatic one of the uh, RWS diplomatic jets, one of the new ones, um, and flew to um, landed uh, in Budapest. Uh, Hungary is um, is one of the members of the committee. Um, and other places that she went to, yeah, she went to Madrid. All, uh, Spain is also a member of the World Heritage Committee. Uh, she went to um, uh, Sarajevo. Bosnia and Herzegovina is a member of the committee. Um, she went to Oman, uh, also a member. Obviously went to Paris, where you, all these ambassadors from these different countries, the permanent ambassadors to UNESCO, um, are all in the same spot in Paris. So that, that was a good good place for it to go. Um, uh, interestingly, um, the the meeting that she had in Madrid uh, was reported in um, by Spanish language media and an environment uh, journalist over there that I had communicated a little bit with. Um, and he interviewed uh, Spain's uh, UNESCO ambassador, who essentially admitted that he'd done a deal with um, with Susan Lee. Um, Spain would support blocking the endanger listing, um, and Australia would uh, in turn support a proposal from Spain to put a site in Madrid on the list. Now, what's important here is that UNESCO had, had said that this site in Madrid, the, the Paseo del Prado and Juan Retiro, um, it, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be placed on the World Heritage List. There was way more work needed to be done, um, but instead the World Heritage Committee crossed out lots of sections of UNESCO's report and just popped it straight on the list. Um, uh, so very clear evidence that on it, in at least one occasion and probably others, um, Australia had had done a deal. Um, now, the World Heritage Convention, the whole thing that ties this this together, I mean, it's one of the oldest UNESCO, it's one of the oldest UN sort of treaties. It's been going for 45 years. It's got about 190-odd countries that have ratified it. Um, and the whole point of it is to conserve the most important places on the planet, uh, places most important to humanity. Um, uh, and so to do that, you kind of need uh, a clear-eyed decisions made on the technical and scientific reports. Um, but it seems that what the committee was doing instead was too often just making decisions that kind of would do each other a favour. Mm. Well, one of the, uh, I guess, key points here is also that the Australia needed someone to co-sponsor amendments put to this meeting to uh, delay this decision about whether the Great Barrier Reef should be termed as in danger. Um, and I remember that you reported that Saudi Arabia and Bahrain were um, set to co-sponsor those amendments. Mm. What did actually happen in the end in terms of that amendment that was put forward and the different countries and how they actually voted? Yeah, um, that's true. So Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, I think, were the first the first names that um, the the federal government managed to secure 
to sponsor this amendment because Australia couldn't put it forward itself. Uh, and then as the days and weeks went on, as the lobbying went on, more and more countries started to join that uh, that amendment. And essentially what it, what it said, what it recommended was um, the World Heritage Committee would not put the reef on the endanger list um, and that instead um, it would uh, ask um, UNESCO to launch a monitoring mission. Um, and they had initially wanted to get the World Heritage Committee to think about the reef again at its 2023 meeting. Uh, but during the committee hearing, um, there was a, a bit of back and forth, uh, mainly between Norway um, and the committee. And in the end, Australia was given just another another six months. But yes, that, that, that amendment, uh, co-sponsored by Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, and obviously a few people were rolling their eyes and raising their eyebrows at another fossil fuel uh, fossil fuel friend, as one campaigner put it, um, uh, getting uh, alongside Australia, uh, that, that amendment worked um, uh, for the most part. And in terms of the World Health Organization and UNESCO, on their own website, it lists some of the cases that have been inscribed on the list of world heritage that are considered in danger. Some of those that they've listed on their own website um, are the Iranian city of Bam, the historic town of Zabid in Yemen, the Bamiyan Valley in Afghanistan, um, national parks in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So, I mean, there are clearly some major um, you know, illustrations of either environmental heritage, cultural or architectural heritage that are you know, of great concern to the World Heritage mm. Committee, um, so, so much so that they have inscribed them as in danger. Do you think that all these lobbying efforts have actually been worthwhile in terms of the real outcomes that have been achieved? Because presumably uh, being listed as in danger doesn't necessarily have, you know, major practical consequences um, in the sense that the UN can't really strong arm people into doing things they don't want to do. Mm. Uh, so I just wonder what the real outcomes are in terms of what Australia was hoping to achieve. Was it more around reputational issues than to do with uh, any kind of practical outcome that could be forced upon them? Yeah, I think it was probably a couple of things. Um, uh, reputational would, would definitely be one. I mean, you'd notice some of those countries, some of those, a lot of those sites that are on the endangered, uh, they're in developing nations. I mean, or, mm. or in in uh, um, areas that have had problems with conflict. I mean, that six of the sites on the endangered list are in Syria. Um, uh, so yeah, sure, reputation not not great, doesn't look good. Um, more stories around the world saying the reef's in danger and more threat to tourism dollars. At least, at least that was that, that was the way that some people framed it. Um, the, the Australian government though claimed that uh, they were unhappy with process. Uh, they said uh, UNESCO should have done a monitoring trip beforehand, and they didn't. Um, and Australia's done everything that the committee have asked them previously, and yet here we are. Um, uh, but some of the other analysts that I spoke to, um, in particular Professor Tiffany Morrison at James Cook University, she, she's um, done some research into 
um, the politics around endangered listings on the World Heritage Committee, um, not just the reef, but many others. Um, and she says that um, this decision was all about trying to preserve um, the federal government's social license to continue to approve fossil fuel projects. Much harder uh, to approve a fossil fuel project um, uh, close to a World Heritage in danger site. Um, so she thinks that maybe there's there's um, uh, there's some fossil fuel in interest sort of uh, uh, around that around that decision as well. Um, and uh, I think all of those are sort of relatively convincing arguments. Um, uh, but it's true that, that Australia has worked hard uh, to do certain things to, to help the Great Barrier Reef. Um, uh, many people say not enough, uh, but UNESCO's report did acknowledge uh, that um, some good things had been done. I mean, one of the reasons why the reef was put on the um, was put on the World Heritage List in the first place in 1981 was because it was it was kind of this this new thing where we had a piece of legislation protecting this huge piece of kind of natural heritage and it was it was seen as a a really great example for the world in how you could manage a really expansive sort of marine area like this um, so the the problem though here is that even if you do all those things um, you can't sort of it's hard to climate proof a reef uh, when they are so susceptible to rising ocean temperatures. Um, so uh, you suspect that even if the government had uh, hit all its water targets, and it's well short of that, um, that you probably would still have seen this recommendation. You would still have seen the impacts rolling out um, over the last few years with coral bleaching. Um, and, you know, you, you don't spare those tourism um, dollars uh, by uh, sort of papering over this issue, uh, it's it's clear that the reef's in danger. Um, and whether you sort of stick the official label on it or not, I'm I'm not I'm not sure what the government gets from that. But clearly, they 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 felt a lot was at stake to send a government minister during a pandemic to the other side of the world and a diplomatic jet to go around several other countries, and at the same time. Uh, get a lot of ambassadors based in Canberra uh, up to the Great Barrier Reef to put them in a mask and snorkel to to go out on Agincourt Reef with Warren Ench. Mm, I do remember seeing that as well. Yeah, it's um, yeah, staggering to see in the pandemic, as we've said, with so many states having been in various forms of lockdown and restrictions, that this is something that's been going on and that the government clearly, um, where it's been criticised for inaction and slow action on many policy fronts, has really ramped up the action uh, on this front. So it is quite stark to see the different priorities uh, in terms of actions taken. Uh, one issue that is uh, really quite relevant to this issue that we've just been speaking with and was also a subject of discussion was uh, the forests in Thailand, the Kayang Krachan forests in Thailand, um, 
And there was also a lot of politics going on within that and the discussions about whether to list those forests as a World Heritage Site. Um, And it really does affect the Karen people there who have been living in those forests um, and have actually been continue to be forcibly evicted, as you report, from those forests, Um, not to be... Uh, conflated with the Kareni people, the Karen and the Kareni are both significant populations in Australia um, who, you know, are wonderful peoples. Um, But obviously this decision also involves Australia um, and a number of other countries. So I wonder if you could take us through the background of this decision and the politics that was going on behind it. Yeah. um, So, yeah, the the Can... um Okang Crashing Forest Complex. Um, it's on the border with Myanmar, um, on the, the Thailand side. Um, uh, I've never been, but it sounds like an amazing place. Um, uh, Asian elephants, endangered giant tortoise, uh, all these amazing sort of birds, threatened leopards, um, uh, marble cats. Um, it, you know, it sounds, sounds stunning. Mm. Um, um, and uh, Thailand has been trying to get this site on the uh, World Heritage List uh, um, since, uh, I, I think, around 2012, uh, maybe in the first attempt. It's been before the World Heritage Committee a few times. Uh, I think three times in total it's been referred back to Thailand. One of the main reasons for the referral back is um, is because of, uh, some major concerns expressed repeatedly by the UN Human Rights Agency, the UNHCR, um, about the way that the Karen people were being treated. Um, uh, it's it's really concerning that um, uh, they are um, those people that complain that they're they're being moved around from place to place uh, forcibly. They are uh, being arrested. Um, their houses are being burned. Um, there was um, a, a disappearance of a land rights campaigner uh, who, a few years later, his um, what's thought to be his remains turned up in a in an oil drum uh, on a dam in the middle of this uh, forest complex. Um, so really, um, really concerning. And the UNHCR um, had written to the World Heritage Committee um, in June and July saying this this place cannot go on the World Heritage List. Uh, it breaks a whole lot of guidelines around the treating of Indigenous people in World Heritage um, and, and, and more widely a, a whole lot of UN guidelines and conventions around uh, human rights and Indigenous people. Um, so it, the the site comes before the committee, um, and uh, instead of referring it back and following the advice, um, the committee instead uh, um, agrees that it should be placed directly on the list. Now, while while kind of we were here thinking about the Great Barrier Reef, there were protests by uh, Karen people in. Um, in Thailand about this decision. Um, they uh, camped outside uh, the Chinese embassy in Bangkok. Uh, they threw red paint around um, the environment department's buildings. 
Um, and th this is these are not new protests. These, these complaints have been going on for years and years. Uh, and in fact, Australia knew about them because the last time the forest complex came up before the committee, Australia actually uh, sort of voiced some concerns. Um, but it seems that this time, uh, Australia just did not say anything at all. Um, and the decision was allowed to go through. Now, this sets up the, the, the potential that Australia has traded the uh, rights of these people in return for its silence on, um, on, on the inscription of the, the forest complex, uh, you know, in, in return for uh, a positive decision for the reef. That's, that, leaves, that should leave a really awful taste in all of our mouths. Um, especially given the plight of these people in this area, um, the, the, um, there's an Indigenous Peoples Forum on World Heritage. Uh, it's chaired by an Australian Indigenous um, uh, lady called Chrissy Grant. And after the decision was made, she said to the committee that this was one of the lowest points in the history of the World Heritage Convention. Um, I, I, I spoke to... Uh, other uh, sort of world heritage experts, um, and they were uh, uh, utterly horrified uh, that Australia, as a country that had previously shown concern, decided to do nothing. But then, of course, uh, Australia was one of 21 countries on this committee. Um, the only country that spoke out actually was was Norway. Um, it said that it, it could not support that decision wanted it placed on the record that it, it was against the decision for all the reasons that we've already outlined. Well, I mean, the silence speaks for itself, doesn't it? The fact that only Norway said something against it, but in the past there had been other countries, including Australia, voicing their concerns and agreeing with the UNHCR that there were human rights concerns. The fact that suddenly those concerns were not considered critical anymore to this decision is, you know, particularly interesting. It is, as well, especially because um, Australia, when the announcement from UNESCO came out that it wanted the route to go on the endanger list, Australia was a country that was complaining about politics uh, yeah. and the politicisation of the process. And then here we are with the, the whole process being politicised um, uh, with sort of horse trading going on uh, that undermines the, the convention, or so some of the, many of the experts say, um, and and this is a this is sort of a broader concern uh, that that people at UNESCO and the IUCN and other World Heritage experts have, have got is they're increasingly seeing the World Heritage Committee drift away from the scientific and technical sort of reports and recommendations that they get, and instead just sort of making making decisions that that help each other out. Mm. It's just been so wonderful to speak with you, Graham, to unpack these issues and to actually really understand what's been going on behind the scenes and what the issues are um, at these UNESCO meetings, because clearly it's a lot more than just the headlines. And I know that you've just done some phenomenal reporting on it. I do encourage people to actually go to the Guardian website and read your articles um, alongside your colleague, Adam Morton, uh, to look at some of these issues in greater depth. And um, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. 
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.